so, the reading of God's Word. Chapter 1, let's look at verse 38, and uh, we're going to read down through verse 40. And as we read these verses, uh, I think you'll see very much uh, the direction we're going tonight. Verse 38, so Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benina the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest took an horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet. And all the people said, God save King Solomon. And all the people came up after him and the people piped with pipes and rejoiced with great joy. So the earth rent with the sound of them. So Israel has had the same king now for 40 years. Judah especially for 40 years. The rest of Israel 33 years. And now they're coming to a time where they need to install a new king. This is what we call a time of transition. A time of... Have you ever gone through a transition in your life? All of us have gone through transitions in our life. And so the title of the Bible study out of chapter 1 is this, Traveling Through Transitions. Traveling Through Transitions. How do you make it through transitions? Some people go through transition and uh, they they have no problems. There's no bumps in the road. There's no getting in and out of the ditch. You you just fly right through it and you're just fine. Boy, other times we go through, through transitions and it can totally throw our life off the rails and leave us uh, in a wreck of a problem. And even if you make it through the transition, there can be the angst and the, uh, the, the, the heartache that accompanies, the emotional distraught that accompanies the journey through. So we're going to talk about transitions this evening and then go first by verse through chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, tonight help us as we look and consider these thoughts. We see, Lord, the uh, trouble that uh, that uh, Israel had uh, through this, uh, the, the little bit of strife that took place, and Lord, how that you were there and provided for them through this, and at least through this transition in Israel's history, they got it right. Lord, help us as we're going through life transitions to get it right. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, transitions are not something that most of us want to endure, all right? I have met um, people who have gone through all sorts of transitions. Uh, you have, a, a, uh, you have a, a, a young man who gets married or a young lady that gets married, and then there's the transition from single life to married life. And it's funny, single people seem to think, oh, I just, if, if I get married, all my problems go away. And then you get married and you find out you just... Moving into a different set of problems, all right? A new set of, uh, it's a different learning curve, all right? And then uh, you get married, and then what happens? Lo and behold, kids come along, right? And then uh, what happens with kids is there's another transition. And then your kids uh, become teenagers. And then, guess what, Pat? You go through a whole different transition when they become teenagers, don't you? And then uh, they, they grow up and they leave home. And then you go through another transition. And Brother Okai, you know what that's like to have your youngest leave home. And now you're what they call an empty nester. And, uh, boy, I, I, uh, I, I told my kids, I said, I love the age that you are right now. They're uh, 13 and 12 and still young enough to be innocent but old enough to have some independence about them. And, and I, you know, you, 
for them, five years, six years is a long time. For me, five years, six years, you blink and it's gone, right? And so um, if you double the time that I've been at White Oak, my youngest will now be 18 and getting ready to head off to college. And uh, that will be here before we know it. And uh, that's, a, that's a difficult transition. And then you have the transition out of the workforce and then transition. Uh, some folks go through a divorce transition and uh, that's uh, very challenging and difficult. And then as you get older, your friends begin to pass on to glory and uh, you have those transitions. And uh, ultimately, there there's just transitions all along life. There can be transitions at church. This is the church's third pastor. I'm the church's third pastor. And there are some of you in here, you were here back when Pastor Brown was the pastor. And you remember that. And then there was the transition to Pastor Pezlak. And then the transition of Pastor Lejeune, and each pastor comes in with a different emphasis on a different syllable, right? <laughs> and uh, they uh, they have a different style and a different demeanor and a different approach at things and transition, transition, transition. And for Israel here, they were going through the transition of having David, the settled king, for 40 years, and now it's time for him to pass on and them to bring on another king. Why are transitions so difficult. Well, I wrote down a couple of reasons, and these are just my thoughts. They don't make it better than your thoughts, but feel free to jot these down if you'd like to think on this later. Uh, transition means change, and most of us don't like change. Transition means change, and most of us don't like change. Uh, even those who like change, uh, there, are, there are changes none of us like, none of us like. Um, why do you think they sell creams that keep wrinkles off your face, ladies? Because you don't want to change. You want to hold on to that youth, right? My wife says, uh, do you use any kind of an anti-aging cream? And I say, no, I want to look old. It makes me more credible in what I do, all right? Uh, so no, I don't use, in fact, I try to add gray hairs, not take them away, all right? Uh, but uh, change. Uh, people don't like change. I've got to be honest with you. I'm not looking forward to the day that I pull away from a college and leave my daughter at school and go home. I'm not looking forward to that. That's a change that I don't want. All right. So transitions mean change, and most of us don't like change. Here's another thought. Transitions bring about the fear of the unknown. Transitions bring about the fear of the unknown. Um, you take the biggest, toughest, strongest man you know, and you say, that guy is not afraid of anything. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. Everyone is afraid of the unknown. Everyone's afraid of the unknown. I take that big, strong guy, and let's say his health gets taken away. You know what he's afraid of? He's afraid of dying. Everyone's afraid of something. And um, change means that there's some unknowns. There's some unknowns. You ever worked a job and uh, you were assigned a new position or maybe you got a new boss at work and now there's this unknown of how are things going to work out there, right? I remember when I came in to be the pastor here, uh, I, I began to group people into one of three categories. There were those who were what I'll call early adapters, they were excited I was the pastor. They were excited to get on with my get, get on board with my vision for the church moving forward. They jumped on and man, they were right on board. And then you had those who were I'll call slow adapters. 
they took a year or two before they made up their mind on who I was and whether or not they wanted to follow. And then the third group are those who refused to adapt. And those are the ones, many of them uh, shifted out of the church and left. And anytime there's a change, you're going to find people land in one of those three categories. There are things that we're comfortable with, and when you take away that which makes you comfortable, insert unknown, and then there is fear with the unknown. Now, I write this down if you're taking notes. Transitions are a great place for Satan to do his best work. Transitions are a great place for Satan to do his best work. Satan looks for transitions to take advantage of you. Satan wants transitions because he knows things are up in the air and he can come after you. If Satan is going to exploit a weakness in your character, he's going to look for that transition and he's going to get you right there. Alright? So, um, you have to be on alert for the devil. Now, why does this work? Okay, what does Satan exploit? Okay? He exploits, and i got three things he exploits. He exploits our lack of faith. He exploits our lack of faith. Um, if you really have a heart that truly trusts God, then there is nothing for Satan to exploit. Because you are trusting God to get you through that transition and get you to the other side unscathed. And when you're going through a transition and you're wringing your hands and you're afraid of the unknown, what you're really saying is, God, I don't know that you are actually in control to handle this. So what is Satan doing? He's exploiting your lack of faith. Here's a neat little thing to think about. That transition you're going through, God already is in your tomorrow. He's already been through that. He can get you through to the other side. You have to trust God through that transition. You may be out of work right now. That might be the transition you're in, not knowing how you're going to pay your bills. You know what? God already lives in the future, exists in the future, and knows how you're going to get through that problem and get the income you need to pay your bills. Did he not say that uh, David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. You trust God, he's going to get you through, right? Some of you going through a transition that might involve your children in some way. Maybe they're wayward from the Lord, or maybe they're testing the waters of carnality and sin, and that's a transition in your life. Listen, you have to learn to trust God. Here's another thought we'll see manifested in our story with David and um, uh, at the end of his life here. Uh, what else does Satan seek to exploit? He exploits our lack of courage. He exploits our lack of courage. Some folks, when they go through transition, you know what they do? They become a turtle. They go in their shell and they hide. They just go in their shell and they hide. They hide. What does it mean to be discouraged? The word dis is the idea of taking away, right? Having it ripped from you. Your courage has been stripped away from you. You are discouraged. Courage. You've been, your courage has been gutted, and when you don't have the courage to stand up and move forward through that transition, you know what happens is that uh, Satan is going to look at that and he's going to take advantage of you. And if you're going to make it through that period of transition, you're going to have to have faith in God and the courage to stand up and move forward. Here's another area Satan exploits. He exploits our lack of boldness. He exploits our lack of boldness. 
when I uh, lost my job in church ministry back in 2013, I uh, wrote my two weeks notice. I, was, I had no choice. I was told to turn in a notice to leave. And so I turned in a two weeks notice. In that two weeks notice, I told the pastor that was uh, seeing us out the door, I said, um, I'm going to be gone the first week of this two weeks notice. I'm going up to Connecticut to look for a job so I can support my family on the other side. And he graciously, graciously, scare quotes, graciously let me go do that. I was going whether he was going to let me go or not. I, I was being being pushed out of that church. And uh, you know what I did? I came up here and I boldly prayed and I boldly looked for a job. And I trusted God and I put my family in a moving truck and I moved up here to Connecticut with the hope of a job but no promise of a job. And when I arrived, I called Todd at Max Finkelstein and I said, Todd, I'm ready to go to work. When can I start? He said, well, I'm not really sure we're ready to hire you. I said, Todd, I need a job. I said, Todd, I'll be a good worker for you. Just bring me in and let me get to work. And I pushed him. And you know what? I was bold. And Todd hired me. And I worked hard. And I had the money to pay the bills. And when you're going through a time of transition, you can't just sit back. You say, well, but, but pastor, I prayed about it. Look, you are to pray through that transition as though everything depends on God. But you're to get up and work as though everything depends on you. And as you move forward in working, you are praying through the process, and God only can work through you if you're not a sack of potatoes sitting on the couch doing nothing. A lot of people say, I don't have the money to pay the bills. I'm praying God will pay the bills. God wants you to get up and use the energy He gave you from sleeping last night and eating yesterday to go get a job and pay the bills. you got to have some boldness. you got to have some gumption. So when thra- traveling through a transition, it is important to remember that God knows the path well and is two things in your life, all right? I know I'm giving you a lot to write down, but write these two things about God and, and who He is through your transitions. Write this down. He is capable. He is capable. You say, I, I don't know where I'm going to live. I need a home. I don't know where I'm going to live. Do you not serve the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Do you not serve the God who is in control of all of the finances on planet Earth? If you were to take all of the currency of planet Earth and you were to convert it to dollars and add it all up, I don't, is there what, four or five trillion dollars combined on planet Earth? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing at that, um, I think we might have more debt than there is money on planet Earth as a country. But uh, anyway, I'm not here, here to get into all that. But uh, if you take all the money in the world, I don't know what that would be and add it up. Do you know who owns all that money? God does. So what are you worried about? Right? You got this bill you can't pay? Listen, He is capable. God is capable. you got a health problem and you just don't know how you're going to over, overcome that. and You're going through a transition with your health and how am I going to overcome this? Either God is capable or He's not. And we have to understand we have a God who is all-powerful. The, the big fancy theological word is omnipotent, all-powerful. And we have a God who can. Write this down. Not only is He capable, He is caring. He is caring. Now, when you take a God who is capable and you blend it with Him being caring, you have a pretty great chance of making it through your transition. Do you not? Do you not? So, um, 
what is missing if you're struggling in your transition is not God, it's you. Because He can. It's are you trusting in Him? Are you trusting in Him? So, look, I'm being broad on purpose because there are as many... We could sit here tonight and make a list that are a thousand items long of all of the various types of transition, right? And so everyone in here, you're going through your own varied version of transition. And I'm looking around the room and I know many of the transitions of the people in the room and... And I'm not going to get into the details because I don't want anybody to think I'm picking on them, all right? But whatever transition you're going through, you make the application. Am I trusting God? Am I moving forward with courage? And am I stepping out on boldness, right? Am I doing it God's way? Or am I trying to take matters in my own hands? So we began our journey with David way back at the beginning of last year. He was a teenage boy in the fields with the sheep. Now we've come to the last days of his life. He's reached the end of his life, and the nation is getting ready to go through a transition into a new king. So let's go back to verse 1 of 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, and uh, let's, let's travel through this transition with the nation of Israel. All right, number 1, we see David's problem. David's problem. And his problem is he has he's feeble. He's a man of old age. Now, Let's read from verse 1 down through verse 4. This is weird. I'm just going to tell you up front, this is weird. Uh, I'm not uh, here to um, help help us uh, necessarily uh, agree with it. We're just going to read it. I'll give you a couple comments and we'll move on to point 2. Look at verse 1. Now King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes because he got no heat. So he's not able to retain body heat. They're putting blankets and clothes on top of him, and he's still, he's still shivering. He's cold. When, uh, wherefore his servant said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord, the king, a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him, and let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord, the king, may get heat. So they sought a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel, and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. So this was not a sexual relationship. David's an old man. She, they bring this young damsel in to be a personal caretaker, and her main responsibility, I, I, I don't know how else to put it, was to cuddle with David. So he had heat, right? And so uh, she is in his bed, and is cuddling with David to help keep him warm and to look after him. So David is old. He's not uh, retaining heat anymore. She's a virgin. She remained a virgin through this. Uh, but David's problem is that he was not, um, not, not healthy. He's feeble. He's at the very end of his life. All right, moving on. Number two, notice Adonijah's plot. Adonijah's plot. Now, who is Adonijah? Adonijah is Absalom's little brother. You may remember Absalom, the one that overthrew uh, David, or tried to overthrow the throne of David, and for a short time did. And and, uh, we looked at that in quite a bit of detail uh, back in November. And so Adonijah is the little brother. He sees that dad is sick, about to die, and so Adonijah is going to try to make himself... Israel's next king. Look at letter A. Notice we see his self-exaltation. His self-exaltation. Look at verse number 5. Verse 5. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, 
exalted himself. There's the self-exaltation saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So he, he sees dad's dying and instead of running to dad's bedside and comforting dad and spending quality time with dad at the end of his life. No, he's preparing to exalt himself and make himself the next king. Did he ask dad if that was dad's plan? He did not. He did not care what dad's plan was. He just saw an uh, an opportunity and so he uh, jumps all over that and gathers 50 men to himself and gets a chariot and rushes out there and declares himself to be Israel's next king. But uh, we see letter B, his selfish entitlement. Look at verse number 6. His selfish entitlement. Now, I could spend um, the whole rest of the Bible study, the next, I could spend a couple of hours talking about verse 6. I'm not going to do that. I am going to give some time to it though. Look at verse 6. And his father... Look here, I want everyone to see it. Look at verse 6. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, What hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, meaning handsome man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. Now look back at the beginning of verse 6. What does that mean? And his father had not displeased him. You know what that means? His father had never corrected him. He had never corrected him. He had never told him no when he wanted something. Anything that Adonijah had wanted, Adonijah was given. And so what do you get when you give a child their way anytime they want? You get an entitled, little, selfish brat. And that's what he was. There are a variety of parenting styles that are out there in the 1950s and 1960s. I'm just going to share with you how I observe it and how I see it. I think this is fairly accurate, but everyone is going to think that of their own opinion, all right? But I think most of you in here will agree with this. In the 1950s, 1960s, the typical dad was a do-what-I-say-when-I-say-do-it. There was very little loving relationship, it was, you better do it or I'll beat you. And so it was rules without relationship. And not every home and not every father. But the typical American dad was, when I say jump, you ask how high, and if I say do push-ups, you ask how many, and you make it happen. And the World War II era, maybe even pre-World War II era father was very harsh and hard. And so that's one end of an extreme. But then you had kids who grew up into that and they said, I will never treat my kids that way. And so now we had a pendulum swing to the other end where parents are, I'm going to let my kids have what they want and do what they want. I'm going to indulge my children in relationship without rules. Relationship without rules. And now we have, um, as a result, that generation produced a bunch of selfish, spoiled brats 
who grew up and did not wait to get married, to have babies, did not wait to get married before they enjoyed the pleasure of, of, uh, of, of what God gave a married couple. And, and then along came uh, 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 birth control measures. And so now we can, uh, rep- we can go through the process of reproduction without actually reproducing. And now we've told, turned sexual activity into just simply a sport or something that you do for pleasure. And now that we're not having babies, we can do it as much as we want, whenever we want. And lo and behold, you had a bunch of children still that were born through all that uh, from moms and dads who do not love each other and did not li- even like each other after the child was born. And now we have a bunch of brokenness in our society today. And we have a bunch of parents who have no idea what they're doing raising their children. I look at David, and I, and I can commend David on many, many, many things. He truly was a man after God's own heart. David was a good man. He is a hero of the Bible. But there's an area where David failed mightily. David was not a good father. He was not a good father. David, uh, you look at his kids, and you have Absalom. Uh, you have Amnon who raped Tamar. You have Absalom who murdered Amnon. And here you have uh, you have uh, uh, Adonijah who is just a selfish, spoiled, entitled little brat. Here's what I want to say to all of you moms and dads in here or watching online. Please, I beg of you, have rules with your children that are built on the foundation of a relationship. Develop a relationship with your kids and enforce those rules. Enforce those rules. Don't let them have whatever they want whenever they want. Sometimes the very best thing you can say to your child is, No. Tell them no. You don't even need a good reason. You just let them say, No, we're not doing that. Dad, can I have a snack? No. Why? Because you don't need it. Dad, can I go to such and such's house? No. Why? Because I said so. Listen, I'm not saying you need to say no every time. But there are times where you need to put your foot down because your child needs to learn what it's like to be told no. What did uh, what happened to Adonijah? His dad never told him no. Look back at verse 6. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, What hast thou done so? He never once called him in and said, Hey, what did you do that for? Hey, why do you think it's okay? That's wrong. Never one time. And so he raised a little boy who now is grown into a man and he's going to try to overtake the throne and make a mess that not only affects his life, but the entire nation. Let her see. We see his sly exclusivity. His sly exclusivity. Look at verse number 7. And we see here a mark of a true gaslighter, a true narcissist. Look at verse 7. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah. Now we know who Joab is. Joab was David's general. Joab has a checkered past, right? He's murdered uh, two uh, men who were valiant men and just 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 gutted the one guy right in the street and and then uh, murdered uh, uh, Saul's old um, uh, general. And uh, listen, uh, and and he was a pragmatic in many ways, but he was also arrogant and he was uh, full of himself and he was, in my opinion, a narcissist. And now here he's joining forces with Adonijah at the end of David's life. Who else? And with Abiathar the priest. Now this one surprises me. 
Abiathar had been a good man up to this point, as far as we can tell, and even had helped David in the conspiracy against Absalom. But now Abiathar is joining sides with Adonijah. Look back there. It says, and they, and they following Adonijah, helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and the mighty men which belonged to David, look here, were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah slew sheep and oxen and fat cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants, but, notice the exclusivity, verse 10, Nathan the prophet and Benaiah and the mighty men and Solomon his brother, he called not. So he's going to set himself up to be king. And so he gathers around himself a squad of people that he believes will get behind him and help elevate him to the throne. But all of a sudden, the people who were truly loyal to David, he left them out. He did not invite them to the party. Boy, if I was preaching to teenagers right now, what I would tell them is, listen, sometimes the mark of your goodness is based on who, who doesn't hang out with you instead of who does hang out with you. Being left out of a crowd is not fun. Being not invited, for instance, to a birthday party for a teenager, that can leave you out in the cold feeling like you don't belong. Um, having people have conversations around your back and not include you, that can be hurtful. And by the way, those things happen to adults at work, or at least they ought to if you're walking right. It ought to be that you walk up on a conversation and people just get awkward. And it's because you're a Christian and they know it. And they know they can't keep talking about that in front of you. And you feel left out. Here they leave out David's mighty men. They leave out Nathan the prophet. Why? Because birds of a feather do what? They flock together. And these guys were disloyal to David and they found each other and they took Adonijah and they're trying to elevate him to be king and they're trying to do all of this to circumvent the process and have no conversation with David about does David want Adonijah to be king or does David have something else in mind? We see Adonijah's plot. He's trying to elevate himself to the throne and he's trying to gather men of great power around him to make that happen. Now here's where we see that this transition is going to go from rough to smooth. Adonijah could have been Absalom 2.0. He was his little brother, but there was a man who stood up and he had the faith and the courage and the boldness to keep this transition from going awry in the ditch to being smooth. Number three, we see Nathan's prudence. Nathan's prudence. Now who is Nathan? Nathan is one of David's seers, one of David's prophets. Do you remember back in 2 Samuel 11 when David slept with Bathsheba and God sent a prophet to confront David? Do you remember that prophet was Nathan? It was Nathan who stood toe-to-toe-to-toe to toe to toe with David and put his finger in David's face and said, Thou art the man, David. Thou art the man. And you know what David did? He humbled himself and he said, You're right. I am the man. 
Do you remember when God, uh, when, when David had the idea of building God this temple and, and he wanted to, 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 to erect it and he called a prophet in and he said to the prophet, I want to do this and this and this. And the prophet said, yes, David, that's great. Go do it. And that night that prophet slept and God told the prophet, go back in and tell David, no, 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 you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. Do you remember that? Which prophet was that? That was Nathan. It was Nathan who went in and gave David the Davidic covenant. Do you remember when David, just a couple of chapters ago, he uh, uh, numbered the people in the census and uh, sent uh, Joab out to count the people and then uh, he was offered three punishments uh, that he had to pick from. We looked at this just last week. And do you remember which prophet came and offered David the three options? It was yet again, it was Nathan. Nathan had been with David on the mountaintops of the Davidic covenant. He had been with him in the low of the senses and the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. Nathan had seen David at his best. He had seen Nathan at his worst. And you know what Nathan was? Nathan was loyal to God's man all the way to the end. Willing to confront him when he was wrong. Willing to back him when he was right. Willing to love him when there were people plotting against him. We see Nathan's prudence. Uh, By the way, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 3 is a verse that you should memorize. I use this verse on a regular basis in my own personal life and in my counseling. Uh, This is a great verse. In fact, it's repeated two or three times in the book of Proverbs word for word. Proverbs chapter 22 And verse 3 describes what's going on with Nathan here. Nathan, the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 3, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The prudent man foreseeth. He anticipates. He's a watchman. He sees, hey, There's evil coming from that right there. And you know what he does? He hides himself. The simple, they just pass right on into the evil and they end up being punished by that evil. You know what Nathan is here? He's a prudent man. He sees that Adonijah and Joab are whispering in the corner. He sees that Abiathar, the priest, is caught up in this trio of of gossip and conspiracy. And Nathan does not look the other way or turn a blind eye and just say, well, these things will work out. No, Nathan says, we're getting ready to go through a transition. David, the king, is getting ready to die. I see what's going on here. And Nathan, in his prudence, he steps up and he confronts and does something about it. Let me ask you a question tonight. How good are you at confrontation? How good are you at confrontation? Do you know that confrontation is a necessary part of healthy relationships? Do you understand that? Some of you here, you have stinky relationships because you're stinky at confronting. Listen, when I say confrontational, I don't mean you get in someone's grill and and you yell at them and you punch them. That's not what I mean by confrontation. I mean, you know how to go look someone in the eye and say... Hey, I love you, and this has got to change. Or, hey man, what you're doing is wrong, and I'm calling you out for it right now. How good are you at confrontation? You say, oh, pastor, I 
hate confrontation. Here's a little truth I've learned about pastoring, all right? And uh, when I use the word pastoring, I am referring to my role. But if you lead a group of people, maybe it's little kids at home or uh, maybe it's uh, your leader as a father or husband, here's, here's what I mean by pastoring. I mean any leadership role you have over people. Maybe you even oversee people at work. That would apply here as well. If you like confrontation, you are not qualified for your job. You should not like to confront. If you're not willing to confront, you're also not qualified for your job. It doesn't mean you have to like it, but you need to be willing to do it. So David here, or rather Nathan here, he's not just going to let this thing slide. He sees that Adonijah is trying to, to, to elbow his way in to be the predecessor of David. He's not going to let it slide. Letter A, we see his appeal. Or rather, his action. I'm sorry, his action. Look with me at verse number 11. So Nathan's not going to take this sitting down. He sees that he's been left out. He sees the gaslighting that's going on here by Adonijah. And he's not just going to take it sitting down. He's going to step up and do something about it. And so we see his wisdom here. Look at verse 11. Wherefore Nathan spake unto Bathsheba. This is the same Bathsheba from... 2 Samuel 11, and God would give David and Bathsheba the, the child Solomon after the death of that baby from that affair. And so Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, doth reign, and David our Lord knoweth it not? Now therefore come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel, that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. By the way, if Adonijah becomes king, do you think he's going to let Bathsheba and Solomon live? Absolutely not. He's going to have both of them killed. And so David says to Bath, or rather Nathan says to Bathsheba, you need to listen to my counsel, because what I'm going to tell you is going to save your life. Alright? Look down at um, verse 13. Go and get thee in unto King David, and say to him, Didst thou not, my lord, O king, swear unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my, uh, my throne, why then doth Adonijah reign? So, look at verse 14. Behold, while thou yet talkest there with the king, I also will come in after thee and confirm thy word. So, uh, what does Nathan do? He goes and gets Bathsheba and he says, Bathsheba, listen, if you don't follow my counsel, Adonijah is going to become king and you and your son are going to end up dead. He said, here's what we're going to do. You go into your husband and you tell him that you swore to me that you would make Solomon king. And while you're telling him what's going on, I'm going to come in the room as the prophet or the preacher and I'm going to confirm your words to try to stir him to action. So Adonijah in this time of transition, or rather uh, Nathan in this time of transition of the country, he does not take this sitting down. He's going to do his part to stir the king to action. So we see letter A, his action, letter B, we see his appeal. His appeal. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. And Bathsheba went in under the king, into the chamber. And the king was very old. And Abishag the Shunammite ministered into the king. That must have been awkward, by the way, right? Bathsheba walks in and you got this little girl, little virgin girl in her 20s, cuddled up in bed with her husband. I'm sure that was probably uncomfortable for Bathsheba, all right? Uh, look at 16. And Bathsheba bowed and did obeisance unto the king. And, and the king said, 
What wouldest thou? And she said unto him, My Lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah reigneth. And now, my Lord, the king, thou knowest it not. And, and he hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and hath called all the sons of the king, and Abiathar the priest, and Joab the captain of the host. But Solomon thy servant hath he not called. And thou, my Lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldest tell them who shall sit on the throne of my Lord the king after him. Otherwise it shall come to pass when my Lord the king will sleep with his fathers that I and my, and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders, will be put to death. And lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. And they told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan the prophet, and when he was come in before the king, he bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, he's going to repeat the same thing, My Lord, O king, hast thou said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall reign upon my throne? For he has gone down this day, and hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and he hath called all the king's sons, and the captains of the host, and Abiathar the priest, and behold, they eat and drink before him, and Say, God save King Adonijah, but me, even me, thy servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and thy servant Solomon, hath he not called? Is this thing done by my lord the king, and hast thou hast not showed it unto thy servant, who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered and said, Call me Bathsheba. So, assumedly, when Nathan came in, Bathsheba must have gone out by the custom, and so David asks for Bathsheba to be brought back in the room, and she came into the king's presence and stood before the king, and the king swore and said, As the Lord liveth, that uh, ha- that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear to thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, he shall sit upon my throne in my stead, even so will I certainly do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth, and did reverence to the king, and said, Let my lord King David live forever. I find that phrase funny. Let my Lord King David live forever. If he's going to live forever, then Solomon's not going to be made king. So, uh, but uh, that was just a customary thing that was said. So Nathan, again, he sees the plot. He sees Adonijah declaring himself to be king and lifted up. And Nathan, he has the courage in this transition to step up and do something about it. I want you to reflect on this question. Are you capable of proper confrontation? Listen, if you don't confront, what you're going to end up with in your life is compromise. And not healthy compromise. Alright? You have to learn how to look someone in the eye and say, this is hurting me and this is hurting you and this needs to stop. And you obey that thing in prayer. Alright, a couple thoughts on, on that and, and we'll, we'll pick up four and five next week. Finish out the chapter. See how all this comes to an end. And you're welcome to read the chapter. All right, here, a couple thoughts real quick. Number one, just because someone did something that hurt your feelings does not mean you need to confront. Sometimes you may just need to grow up. Okay? Um, but when someone does something that I don't like, what I try to do is take a step back and get on my knees and pray about it. And after I have prayed about it, if the Lord is moving in my heart that I need to confront, 
that I need to go confront. Okay? As the pastor, I have had to confront many a situation, many a situation. As a husband and father, I have to confront at home sometimes. You know, I don't always get this thing right, especially at home. All right? I usually get it right at church. I don't always get it right at home. Sometimes I confront my kids over things, and I probably shouldn't have done that. Sometimes I confront Angela over things, and I probably should have just bit my tongue and let that one slide. So the first thing you should do is get on your knees and pray. All right. The second thing you should do is ask with that person, was this a one-off, or is this a pattern of unhealthy behavior? All of us are capable of making a mistake, big or small. And sometimes we make mistakes and we don't even realize we made it. And you don't need to just go get in someone's face just because they did something you don't like. So ask yourself, is this a pattern of unhealthy behavior on their behalf? And if you believe that it is, and you are certain that it is, then you ask God to give you a spirit of meekness to calmly confront them, and you pray that God will give you results. Now here's what I've found in confrontation if you will leave people's dignity intact, you'll get much further than if you just go scorched earth policy and you just lay them out. And so learn how to confront. Learn how to confront. Learn how to go talk to someone. Give them the benefit of the doubt everywhere you can. But you have to address the problem. And you be as kind as they'll let you be and you be as firm as you need to be. And at the end of the day, you leave that to the Lord. All right? That's my advice to you, and I hope that's a help. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer, traveling through transitions. Whatever transition you're going through right now in your life, why don't you give that to the Lord and walk by faith and not wring your hands in despair or worry. All right? Good. Let's pray. We'll go forth and serve God tonight.